0: Welcome to the SWIB Podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, communication specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. Yogi Berra once famously said, it ain't over till it's over. That was certainly true for 2023 and the financial markets. Just when it looked like many of the same issues that investors faced in 2022 would hold down returns, 2023 finished strong. Like 2022, last year was another tumultuous period marked by geopolitical uncertainties and the Federal Reserve's continued efforts to control the highest inflation in decades through aggressive interest rate hikes. The financial markets experienced significant volatility with a challenging landscape for generating positive returns. Unlike 2022, the end of the year saw a confluence of favorable market developments, including a downward trend in inflation, continued strong economic growth, and signals from the Federal Reserve that further interest rate hikes are unlikely.
1: The SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin retirement system. Please make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your fellow WRS members, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so it's easier for other members to find this show.
0: Despite the challenges of the past year, the State of Wisconsin Investment Board remained committed to its long-term investment strategy that aims to keep annuity adjustments and contribution rates stable and meet the benefits promised to over 675,000 Wisconsin Retirement System participants. In this episode of the SWIB podcast, we welcome back SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer Edwin Denson. We will talk with Edwin about the positive performance the WRS trust funds turned in for 2023, and what that means for annuity adjustments for WRS retirees and contribution rates for the pension system's active employees and their employers. We'll also get a chance to hear how Edwin and his team navigated the unpredictable financial markets and get his thoughts on what we might expect in the year ahead. Edwin will also share how SWIB is working to keep itself positioned as a leading global investor. Edwin, Happy New Year and welcome back to the SWIB podcast. Thank you very much for having me and Happy New
2: Year to you and all of our listeners. So, Edwin, I just wanted to open here by
1: pointing out something that I saw of all places on Reddit a few years ago, but I think it illustrates sort of something important about the last year. And and this post that I saw on Reddit, it was very famously bandied about social media as well, was one of these Reddit investors circa mm, 2019, somewhere right in there, saying, I don't understand what's so hard about investing. You just buy when the price is low and then sell when the price is high. That sort of naivety of that era before things went all topsy-turvy is really, I think, something that we can look back on and laugh now, because the past several years for investors have not been easy. There's been a lot of market volatility, interest rates have remained high, and the debate over whether we will officially enter a recession continues. So despite the ups and downs of the past year, the Wisconsin Retirement System Trust Funds finished the year with positive results. Can you tell us just how the trust funds did this in 2020? 2023.
2: Yes, of course. The core fund, which is the larger of the two WRS trust funds with more than $122 billion in assets, ended 2023 with a preliminary one-year net return of 11.4% and a preliminary five-year net return of 9.3%. So that's 9.3% per year over the last five years. But these returns are well in excess of the current 6.8% target for maintaining the stability of the retirement system on a longer-term basis. It's also worth noting that on longer time frames, so looking at the core fund's 10-year and 20-year returns, net of external manager fees, our returns have exceeded the core fund's benchmark over that period. The previous year, 2023, so that 11.4% uh, preliminary return that we have for the core fund. In the same year, the S&P returned a little over 24%, and the Bloomberg U.S. Government Credit Index returned 5.7%. The Variable Fund, which is an optional stock-only fund with more than $9 billion in assets, ended the year with a preliminary one-year net return of just over 22% and a preliminary five-year net return of 12.7%. The Variable Fund's 10-year and 20-year returns net of external manager fees were 9.3% and 8.4%
0: respectively. So the added good news is that WRS retirees are expected to see their annuities increase and active employees and their employers should see contribution rates remain stable, right? Yes, that is the expectation.
2: Strong absolute investment returns in four of the past five years means we expect positive annuity adjustment for beneficiaries this spring and continued stable employer and employee contribution rates for 2025. The Department of Employee Trust Funds, or the ETF as we know it, will soon provide estimated ranges for the annuity adjustments for both the core trust fund and the variable trust fund and announce actual adjustments to those in March. And then, of course, investment performance, again, also affects
0: contribution rates, and those rates for 2025 will be set in June. So we should point out that WRS retirees have seen positive annuity adjustments in nine of the last 10 years, with the only exception being 2018. When there was no adjustment and for active employees over the last 10 years contribution rates have hovered between 6.5 and 6.9 percent that really speaks volumes not only to the design of the wrs but the long-term investment strategy that swib has put in place to help protect participants from large swings in annuities and contributions i'm very proud of the work
2: that swib staff does on behalf of the wrs participants the wrs continues to be a model pension system The Pew Charitable Trust recently published a report on public sector retirement systems. The report found that Wisconsin has demonstrated that fiscal discipline and sound policy together can help states keep pension promises by maintaining full funding and stable costs. That same report found that even with recent high inflation rates and a modest annuity increase in 2022, retirees in the WRS had more protection from inflation than the typical public retiree. Finally, Pew found that the WRS is well-prepared for the next economic downturn, noting that our stress testing of the system demonstrates that current policies are sufficient to maintain high funding levels with minimal uncertainty about contributions. A stress test of the WRS shows that in a 25th percentile scenario, which is a 1 in 4 chance that economic and investment conditions will be this bad or worse, Employer contributions would only need to rise from 12.9% of salary to 15.2% of salary over a 10-year period, according to the report. This data just reinforces the importance of maintaining a well-structured and fully funded pension system and implementing an investment strategy that can weather a variety of market climates given the market volatility that we continue to experience.
1: Well, that's certainly reassuring to hear, Edwin, but I do want to go back to the year-end returns that you shared and maybe just dive a little bit deeper into those returns and the market environment over the past year. Can you talk a little bit about the various asset classes and how they performed?
2: Sure, of course. Uh, It was, overall, a bit of a roller coaster ride in 2023, and fortunately, markets ended with a strong upswing. Through the first half of the year, it looked like we were going to have a modest year at the least, and perhaps even better, with the core trust fund rising 6.5% through June. The market backdrop at that point was one of a very strong outturn for equities, with our equity holdings being up about 13% at that point and even modest gains in fixed income, with our fixed income holdings up close to 4%. On the private market side, real estate was dragging, but private equity and debt was modestly positive. Then came the third quarter, and to be more precise, the four-month period from the end of June to the end of October. Interest rates skyrocketed, with the 10-year yield moving from 3.84% at the end of June to nearly 5% in late October, and asset returns moved correspondingly. The core trust fund return retreated to just over a 2% gain for the year to date through the end of October from that 6.5% that we had been tracking at the end of June. The return on our equity holdings was roughly cut in half, and the general surge in interest rates led to our fixed income holdings being in negative return territory for the year by that time. Then the last two months of the year saw a remarkable rebound in market returns, as views on inflation and prospective Federal Reserve policy took a significant turn. This was called the Fed pivot in the financial press. We ended the year with the core trust fund up over 11%, as I mentioned before, having stood at a paltry 2% at the end of October, with our equity holdings at the end of the year up almost 22%, and our fixed income holdings up nearly 9% for the year. The notable exception to a great year for capital markets was real estate, which continues to suffer from the general higher interest rate environment relative to the last five years. I would note that although real estate had a tough sledding, again, down close to 13% for the year in general, our own portfolio benefited greatly from its positioning, losing more like 7% compared with that roughly 13% decline in the broader real estate market. I mean, wow, you
1: look back at 2023 and it really is a great reminder of what a roller coaster ride it was. But when you look ahead, how do you see those various asset classes performing in
2: 2024?
1: Are there any changes to the asset allocation for the core fund in response to the current market environment?
2: Yes, we expect modest returns overall from here. Stocks are likely at the high end of fully valued, so nothing extraordinary is expected on the upside. And with interest rates having moved up meaningfully over the past two years to reflect the reality of higher inflation and the Fed rate hiking cycles likely at an end, we expect modest fixed income returns, perhaps in line with current yields. In regards to the asset allocation, in December, our independent board of trustees approved an asset allocation for the core trust fund that is similar to the allocation that was set for 2023. The board approved a reduction to our public equity target from 48% down to 40%, a modest increase in our public fixed income target from 25% to 27%, and an increase in private equity and debt from a target of 15% to 18%. The board also approved reducing the fund's leverage level from 15% to 12%. The changes reflect a weaker outlook for public equity relative to public fixed income a continuation of our long-term plan to judiciously grow our private equity debt exposure over time, and a reduction in fund leverage
0: to reflect the reality of higher borrowing costs relative to expected market returns. So Edwin, over the last several episodes of the podcast, we've talked to your staff about the impact the economy has had on investors. We've discussed high inflation rates, geopolitical issues, and the continued debate on whether we officially enter a recession What are your overall thoughts on what investors experienced in 2023? And what are some of the bigger hurdles you and your team had to clear and maybe some of the biggest surprises? Well, the big change was the degree to which inflation came down, particularly toward the end of the year,
2: and the way that that influenced expectations for Federal Reserve policy over the next year or so. This change in dynamic is also part and parcel of an increase in the likelihood of a proverbial soft landing, Where the economy slows but does not move into recession as inflation moderates to levels acceptable to the Federal Reserve in the long run. To peel back another layer of the onion on that, the decrease in inflation seems to have been more associated with the continued clearing of lingering supply chain type issues rather than a retrenchment in demand. The reason this distinction between supply and demand is important is because the more inflation resolves itself through the reorganization of the supply side of the economy, the less work that needs to be done on restraining demand through tighter interest rate policy from the Federal Reserve. This is why both market expectations for Federal Reserve policy and communications from the Federal Reserve itself suggest that we may have reached a peak in the current tightening cycle, with the policy rate currently at 5.5%, and the next move may be to reduce rates. Now, there are a few words of caution on this first, though the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation has decelerated to a rate of about 2.4%, which is close to their target of 2%, there's still work to be done to see it convincingly and sustainably at 2%. The Federal Reserve is likely feeling a bit of a sting from being behind the ball on allowing inflation to get so high in the first place, peaking at over 6% in early 2022, and will therefore be cautious in declaring victory through delivering interest rate cuts. Second, the acute monetary tightening that we have experienced, where we saw the federal funds rate target move from 0.25% or 25 basis points at the start of the tightening cycle back in March of 2022 to the current 5.5% set in July of this past year, the full effects of that is likely yet to have fully worked its way through the system. Monetary policy infamously works with long and variable lags, usually interpreted as up to 18 to 24 months. We are at 22 months from the start of the tightening cycle in March of 2022, but only six months from the ostensible end of the tightening cycle in this past July.
0: And what is your outlook for the coming year?
2: Well, what this means for the economy and the investment outlook is that the economy will likely continue slowing, as recent data has suggested. We're not expecting a full-on recession, though that remains a distinct risk, but we are expecting a meaningful slowdown in growth from the 2 to 3% range that we've been experiencing recently to more like 1%. Households' cushion of savings in the form of liquid assets that were built up during the pandemic, as the government sent individuals and businesses stimulus checks, has largely eroded to pre-pandemic levels for households and most of the income distribution, excepting the very upper end. We would hope that this slowdown is associated with the continuation of the downward trend in inflation to the Federal Reserve's preferred rate of 2%, allowing the Fed to more emphatically declare an end of the rate hiking cycle, and be more focused on one and how to bring rates down to a level more consistent with a long-run sustainable rate of growth that leaves inflation around that ideal 2% rate. In this interval, where the economy slows and inflation may or may not be continuing downward, all eyes will be on the Fed and what it communicates. This will mean continuing fluctuations in interest rates as the market vacillates on whether the Federal Reserve will be in a position to start reducing interest rates toward the end of this year It will also mean that equities, which are at least fully valued at this juncture, as I mentioned before, given that run-up that we saw at the end of 2023, they will likely ebb and flow with Federal Reserve policy expectations as well. Interest rates should similarly vacillate.
1: Well, Edwin, and it sure feels like we've been saying this a lot lately, but it sounds like this is going to be an interesting year. But I did want to just pivot a little bit here, if it's all right, maybe embarrass you just a little bit, because I understand that congratulations are in order. You were recently named to the board of the International Center for Pension Management. So congratulations.
2: And can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and why you wanted to get involved with them? Of course. So first of all, thank you for that. And we'd be happy to talk a little bit more about the International Center for Pension Management, or as we refer to it, the ICPM. So the ICPM was founded in 2004 at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. That's their business school. And the purpose was to bridge the gap between academic research and the pension fund industry. The ICPM became an independent nonprofit organization in 2015 and has grown into a global network of 48 pension funds and related organizations that together manage more than $6 trillion in assets. For me, this is a group where I can meet with representatives of pensions from around the world that are large, sophisticated, or in most cases, both, to learn and share experiences. One aspect that I really benefit from is the idea of combining a strong academic tilt with the practical on-the-ground experience of the plans that are represented in the network. For example, the ICPM Research Award for 2023 went to a paper exploring the relation between the structure and size of defined benefit pension plans and their choice of active versus passive management, their choice between internal versus external management, and their choice between allocating to public versus private market assets. And these are questions that SWIB faces every day.
1: Well, and it's certainly excellent for WRS members as well, because not only now do they have a seat at the table, but it means that you're able to bring all this good knowledge and these practices from other pensions around the world back and perhaps learn from them and implement them here in Wisconsin. You've been at recent meetings in Copenhagen and Montreal. What are some of the issues that pensions are talking about that have been interesting to you?
2: Well, there are two in particular that seem to be fairly pervasive, and they both make me feel pretty good about where we are at currently at SWIB. The first issue is plan consolidation, which is an existing structural benefit to the WRS. A number of leading plans in terms of investment sophistication around the world face the challenge of managing several different plans with differing plan mechanics and differing funded statuses simultaneously. This is also true in other states in the United States as well where there may be separate plans for teachers, firefighters, and a general category for public employees. We benefit having a single consolidated plan with one mandate that can take advantage of economies of scale, both in markets and in terms of staffing. This is also a benefit to the active members of the WRS who have a wide range of jobs in the state that are available to them while remaining a part of the WRS. Another issue that a lot of plans are facing right now is a push to move more towards a defined contribution setup versus defined benefit. And of course, the WRS has elements of both. A number of geographies are seeing a push toward DC from DB in order to grapple with the risk that there will be a shortfall in assets available to pay benefits. Moving to a DC approach places that shortfall risk on the plan participant rather than the plan sponsor. This is an attractive change for governments and employers but increases the uncertainty for retirees. Through our risk-sharing mechanics, WRS beneficiaries are guaranteed a baseline benefit, like a typical DB plan, but they also experience annuity adjustments based on investment performance, which looks more like DC. This combined approach has allowed the WRS to remain fully funded, maintain stable contribution rates, and provide a modest pension benefit at a favorable cost to system participants and employers, And going back
0: to the Pew report, the structures provided reasonable inflation protection as well. So we value innovation at SWIB. What are some of the things on the investment management side that we are doing that are still on the leading edge among our peers?
2: Well, interestingly, Chris, there are two things that we do that we've been doing now for more than 10 years that still seem to be rather unique and on the leading edge. The first of which is policy leverage, which we began employing back in April 2012 and our alpha-beta overlay, which we began employing in October of 2013. Again, though we've employed both of these innovative features for several years, uptake by other plans on overall plan leverage has been slow to gain traction, and the scale of our alpha-beta overlay in the context of the size of the plan remains relatively unique. Our overall size likely has a lot to do with this outcome. Many plans are too small to justify having enough staff on hand to competently and expertly manage leverage, And some are too large to scale enough for leverage
0: to be a modest yet meaningful element of the overall investment strategy. So what are some areas where you hear other plans doing interesting things that we could learn from?
2: Well, one area is the efficient management of beta or market exposure. And that has a lot to do with having enough, but not too much cash on hand. We would very much like to have our assets working for us at all times in terms of generating returns. And then... In general, just balance sheet utilization, again, making sure that we are taking advantage of our position as a long-term investor and potential liquidity provider to, again, make sure our assets are working for us. Now, these are areas that I mentioned where we do have existing capabilities and we've made meaningful strides and continue to move forward, but I think there's further that we could go to the benefit of the system. Another area is an area called factor premia. Peers of ours in Europe and Canada are further ahead in thinking about their exposures, not just in terms of traditional asset classes like equities, fixed income, or credit, but also thinking in terms of factor exposure. Think quality, value, and momentum. This is something that we're thinking about now, but we are taking a very measured and deliberate approach to building that out.
1: Well, Edwin, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity to sort of compare and contrast the best practices that we have here in Wisconsin against our peers around the world. But as we wrap up our discussion today, what is the one message that you want WRS participants to remember as we start this journey through another
2: unpredictable new year? Well, the message is one, as almost always, of cautious optimism. Despite the potential headwinds facing capital markets, whether it be geopolitics, uncertainty regarding inflation and federal reserve policy, or even political uncertainty here at home with the coming election, our long-term strategy of maintaining a diversified exposure to a wide range of asset classes and markets is highly likely to stand us in good stead. And with the confidence that the governor, the state legislature, and our board of trustees have shown in giving SWIB the authority to invest the way we do, We fully expect to continue to deliver on the promise of our beneficiaries living in dignity in their retirement after
0: having devoted their working lives to service. Edwin, thanks for taking some time to take a look back at 2023 and a look forward to 2024 and to discuss some of the innovative ways SWIB is working to remain an investment management leader. It was a great discussion once again. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. And as always, it was a pleasure and a privilege. And thank you to all our listeners for checking out this episode of the SWIB Podcasts.
1: The SWIB Podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board with editing and sound engineering by Matt Kovarubias and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for business is podcampmedia.com.
0: Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.